Africa rise and shine Africa zuri Africa amka na unai Good morning and welcome to the third and final hour of Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, always giving you news from an African perspective, broadcasting live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are online on www.channelafrica.co.za and on Channel 802 on the DSTV audio bouquet. I'm Jolanin Tulo. In studio with me is Anne Musa and Tabiso Lohoko. Top stories on Africa rise and shine this hour. WHO Director General says that investing in health isn't the reward for development, but rather a prerequisite for it. The majority of economists expect the South African Reserve Bank to cut the repo rate this week. And in economics, the Southern African Research Foundation for Economic Development Regional Coordinator George Chungwa says the preservation of local business ecosystem by government is important in Esaduni. But first, let's get a full news update with Anne. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Good morning, I'm Anne Moussin. South Africa's COVID-19 death toll is fast approaching the 300 mark. This as the Health Ministry records 22 new deaths, bringing the total of coronavirus-related casualties to 286. 918 positive new cases have been recorded in the past 24 hours. The country's total number of confirmed cases now is 16,433. Noma Bulani reports. The Western Cape has clocked the 10,000 positive cases mark with 10,035 cases. That's more than 60% of the country's total. Gaudeng still has the second highest number of infections, but drastically lower at over 2,300. 7,298 people have recovered from the viral infection. The health ministry says with the easing of lockdown coming at month end, vulnerable groups such as the elderly and those with pre-existing conditions must take extra precautions to ensure they're not exposed to COVID-19 virus. South Sudan's first vice president, Rahik Machar, his wife, Defense Minister Angelina Tini, as well as a number of Machar's office staff and bodyguards have tested positive with COVID-19. That's according to the press secretary, James Gedet Duck. Machar will now self-quarantine in his residence for two weeks. The press secretary says Machar is healthy with no symptoms. He chairs the country's high-level task force on COVID-19. Kenya's the Dub refugee camps have confirmed their first positive case of COVID-19. That's according to the country's health ministry. The health chief administrative secretary, Rashid Aman, said that the two cases were from the Ifu and Dangalia camps on the border with Somalia. At the end of last month, the country's authorities placed the camps under lockdown. Kenya's confirmed cases of COVID-19 now stand at 912. Sarah Kimani reports. Until Monday, Kenya had not registered any positive cases of COVID-19 in the refugee camps. Kenyan authorities banned entry into the camps two weeks ago as part of measures aimed at preventing the spread of COVID-19. Health experts and humanitarian groups have cautioned that an outbreak of COVID-19 in the congested refugee camps would be catastrophic. 
It is not clear yet how the virus got into the camp which borders Somalia, which has so far recorded 1,445 cases and 57 deaths. U.S. President Donald Trump has given Director General of the World Health Organization Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus a 30-day deadline to make major changes or the U.S. would permanently cut off funding to the organization and reconsider its membership in the body. Trump has again lashed out at the World Health Organization, accusing it of being a puppet of China. Trump has previously accused the WHO of failing to hold Beijing to account for the coronavirus pandemic, which has infected over 4.8 million people across the globe and claimed over 320,000 lives. Flooding in Somalia has affected nearly 1 million people with more than 400,000 forced from their homes. The UN's Office for Humanitarian Affairs says that 24 people have died. There's also a high risk of disease spreading as people crowd together in temporary shelters. The worst hit place was Baladwain, 85% of which was inundated after the Shabela River burst its banks last week. And in sports news, English English Premier League clubs will return to training after agreeing to allow small group sessions to begin with a possible return to normal contact training next week. The league held a conference call for all 20 clubs on Monday where the move was given unanimous backing, but there remains no firm date for the season to resume. Another meeting is scheduled for early next week when the league will decide on whether to move to the second phase which allows for training involving contact. It's the first move in the league's project restart plans to resume play in the league which has not held a game since the 9th of March due to the coronavirus pandemic the league has set the 12th of June as a tentative date for a restart of action but the chief executive richard masters says they were aware they would need to be flexible and that's the news headlines at 7:30 central african time SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Thank you, and for that news update. The coronavirus pandemic has shown that health care must be at the center of all development agenda. World Health Organization Director General Dr. Tedros Ghebreyesus says that investing in health isn't the reward for development, but rather a prerequisite for it. He made the comments at the opening of the World Health Assembly virtual meeting, where President Cyril Ramaphosa and Chinese President Xi Jinping were amongst several other world leaders who delivered remarks. Norma Bolani reports. In a first of its kind, but a norm in this current climate, the World Health Organization hosted this year's installments of the World Health Assembly via internet connections. The session's theme was supposed to celebrate the International Year of Nurses and Midwives, but the focus, expectedly, was a novel coronavirus, which has taken over the world. WHO Director General Tedros Ghebreyesus says that this pandemic should be used as a lasting lesson on having universal, sustainable health infrastructure and systems. I'm calling on all nations to resolve that they will do everything it takes to ensure that the 2020 coronavirus pandemic is never repeated. I'm calling on all nations to invest in strengthening and implementing the many tools at our disposal especially the global treaty that underpins global health security, the international health regulations. To be successful, we must all commit to mutual ownership and accountability. One way to do that 
proposed by the Africa Group last year is through a system of universal periodic review in which countries agree to a regular and transparent review of each nation's preparedness. The United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres. The WHO is irreplaceable. It needs enhanced resources, particularly to provide support to developing countries, which must be our greatest concern. We are as strong as the weakest health systems. Protecting the developing world is not a matter of charity or generosity, but a question of enlightened self-interest. The global north cannot defeat COVID-19 unless the global south defeats it at the same time. South African President Cyril Ramaphosa, representing the continent as African Union chair, called on improved international cooperation to adequately address the pandemic and its impact. To turn back the frontiers of the pandemic, we must also deepen international collaboration as well as solidarity around issues like research and development and investment. We fully support the initiative by the World Health Organization together with many other governments in assisting the developing countries. For its part, South Africa is participating in several research initiatives. We must ensure that there is equitable access to medical equipment, technologies, in all respects. In this Xi Jinping, president of China, says his country has committed two billion U.S. dollars over two years to assist with the international response to COVID-19. Speaking through an interpreter, she also pointed out collaborations with Africa. China will establish a cooperation mechanism for its hospitals to pair up with 30 African hospitals and accelerate the building of the Africa CDC headquarters to help the continent ramp up its disease preparedness and control capacity. COVID-19 vaccine development and deployment in China, when available, will be made a global public good. This will be China's contribution. The WHO has welcomed the proposed resolution for an impartial and independent process and a comprehensive evaluation about the origins of the coronavirus and how it was handled from the initial stages. So I will initiate an independent evaluation at the earliest appropriate moment to review experience gained and lessons learned and to make recommendations to improve national and global pandemic preparedness and response. But one thing is abundantly clear. The world must never be the same. We do not need a review to tell us that we must all do everything in our power to ensure this never happens again. I'm Noma Polani in Johannesburg. The Democratic Republic of Congo's civil society has expressed concerns about security and humanitarian situations in a Turian called on President Felix Tshisekedi to find a quick solution. It's almost every day that people are killed in that country's northwestern province where attacks by a local militia have forced more than a million inhabitants out of the villages. The displaced people are in need of assistance, as Jean-Noël Bomezi reports from Kinshasa. At least 650 people have been killed in different areas of the Ituri province since the starting of the year, following ongoing attacks attributed to the Development Cooperative of Congo, a local militia well known through its acronyms of CODECO. 
Among the territories targeted by the Kodeko attacks and where inhabitants are killed on daily basis are Njugu, Mahagi, Irumu and Mombasa. Troops of the Democratic Republic of Congo's armed forces, the National Army well known as FARDC, are facing this armed group, but results are not good according to the provincial civil society. The Office of the Ituri Civil Society Coordination has called on President Felix Tshisekedi to find a quick solution. Among the suggestions are a security state of emergency and a state of siege where the province should be under military management. Jean Bosco Lalo is the coordinator of the Ituri Civil Society. We have called on the president to intervene militarily. Troops deployed are working well, of course, but with no good results. We want a security state of emergency in Ituri. We want as well a state of siege. The civil society coordination has described the humanitarian situation as very concerning since the millions of displaced people in need of assistance include elders, women and kids. The coordination believes the needy people are more than 3 million and this number is growing on a daily basis as inhabitants continue to flee ongoing Kodeko attacks in that part of the Democratic Republic of Congo. The Office of Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs has expressed the concerns as well, but said the number of Ituri displaced people is 1.2 million. Yvonne Edumu is the Ocha spokesperson here in Kinshasa. There are about 1.2 million people displaced in Ituri out of the 5.5 million people displaced throughout, throughout the whole country. And that's about 20% of, uh, of IDP population who are in Ituri. As a result of violence and insecurity, it has placed civilians, uh, families in a very difficult situation. Uh, it means, of course, that people have had to move, which means that children are not able to go to school, um, farming activities are not able to be conducted. It's pretty much destabilized the livelihoods of, of, of thousands of families. And unfortunately, it's not the first time for, for Turi. It's been a region that has that's also known this sort, of a, this sort of violence. Humanitarian organizations are doing their best to try and assist these internally displaced people in that part of the DRC. But the most challenging issue remains the difficult access to the needy people. That's indeed what Yvonne Edumu, the Ocha spokesperson, told the Channel Africa. Access is also related to how much violence and insecurity is going on in these areas. So we're having some challenges in, in accessing people and also vice versa, which also means that um, civilians, those who are displaced, also having difficulties coming to us. As you know, uh, access works in, in both ways. Nevertheless, we are in areas where that are more peaceful, that are quieter, where we have uh, more access. You know, we're able to continue uh, running our, our operations, but we need more access to be able to reach more people. Access is fundamental to the work of humanitarian organization, and without access, which again runs in both ways, meaning organization being able to 
reach civilians or civilians being able to come to us to get assistance that is fundamental to the work that we do without that there's no humanitarian aid the real need for us today is an end to the violence more security and to all these land conflicts and community violence so that we are able to go to the people without any obstacles this is not the first time for militias to destabilize inhabitants in ituri following what observers describe as community conflicts, mostly between the Lendu and the Hema communities. Jean-Noël Pamweze for Channel Africa in Kinshasa. Bringing your latest updates on the novel coronavirus, I am Silvanus Kalemera for Channel Africa in Kigali in Rwanda. For the advice given by a healthcare provider, your national and local public health authority or your employer on how to protect yourself and others from COVID-19. WHO recommends 30 minutes of physical activity a day for adults and one hour a day for children. If your local or national guidelines allow it, go outside for a walk, a run or a ride, and keep a safe distance from others. If you can't leave the house, find an exercise video online, dance to music, do some yoga, or walk up and down the stairs. Avoid touching your eyes, nose and mouth to slow the spread of the coronavirus. For more information on the coronavirus, visit the World Health Organization site at www.who.int. For your latest on the novel coronavirus disease for Channel Africa, Amoki Kinzaka in Yaoundé, Cameroon. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Hands touch many surfaces and can pick up viruses. Employees in South Africa will return to work psychologically crippled and this will destroy more companies than the lockdown itself. This is according to Mark Baker, Chief Executive Officer of Migro, an online personal development platform focusing on emotional intelligence. Prior to COVID-19, large-scale studies showed that the workforce in South Africa was already struggling with low employee engagement levels. Mark Barker now joins us on the line to unpack this further. Good morning. Good morning, Mark, and thank you so much for joining us on Africa Rise and Shine. Good morning, Zolani. Lovely to be here with you this morning. Now, Mark, let's get straight into it. So why do you think mental health issues in the workplace will become more of a problem when employees eventually do return back to work? Yeah, Zolani, it's it's not only what I think, it's what uh, a lot of research is starting to show around the world. Um, that really the the COVID-19 pandemic has had quite a radical effect on people, uh, not only in South Africa because of the lockdown, uh, but also in many different uh, countries because of the anxieties, the fears, um, the rise of things where where there are um, contexts like a lockdown of domestic violence, Mm. um, of marital disputes, uh, family dynamics, etc., etc. So it's really starting to show uh, all over the place. And it's quite a it's quite a big concern. And how exactly will a troubled work staff cripple companies' performance? 
Well, I think, uh, you know, to think of you and me, Zwalani, mm. is probably a, a good place to start, you know, when 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 we uh, just wake up and have uh, a really tough day, you know, mm. you wake up at home, there's a problem with the kids, there's a problem with the transport, there's a problem with finances, mm. there's some family dynamic that's happened, you're not exactly going to perform at your best. Of course. Uh, at work, you may be distracted by a whole lot of things. Um, uh, you know, you may be struggling to concentrate. Uh, you certainly are going to struggle to be creative and, and innovative. Now, that's for, for, for fairly uh, normal, uh, normal in inverted commas, dynamics like perhaps yours and mine, Zwalani. Um, well, let me just speak to mine. Mm-hmm. Um, but now you're sitting with a context in South Africa where there's been um, no alcohol s- sold. There's been restrictions on people's movement, um, on people being able to do their normal routines, um, there may be contexts of domestic violence, alcoholism, um, you know, suicide rates are on the increase. The mental health lines uh, have doubled in terms of the uh, phone calls that they're getting. And so really the pressure on the entire system uh, mm. for employees is much higher. And so now you've got a whole workforce of employees that's going to be going back um, really, really struggling. Uh, so, you know, there, there really are some significant reasons why it's going to be very difficult for employees to go back to work as usual and just perform at an average level, mm. never mind at an above average level, which is going to be needed in the economy. And you maintain that companies' survival post-COVID-19 will largely depend on their ability to basically restore and lead the effective psychosocial functioning of their people. Now, uh, can you please unpack this a little bit further for us? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's really just a, a major clash coming, Zwalani, mm-hmm. um, because there are two majorly different needs that are going to um, clash with each other when people get back to work in South Africa. The one need is from the company's side, which is that they, they need to get back up and running as fast as possible. Literally, three months ago, they need to be you know, pumping, firing on all cylinders, and producing as mm. much as possible with people being as effective as possible. So let's say uh, on the 1st of June, a company opens its doors again and the employees come back uh, to whatever percentage or whatever degree. The company really is going to uh, need or demand that people start working straight away at their best. Now, that's the company's need. But the employees' needs are going to be very different. Mm. The employees are going to need time to recoup to readjust, to get used to just transport again, to get used to who the workers are that they're working with. You know, there have been so many retrenchments. Uh, there's been so many pat- salary cuts that some people have had to, you know, move jobs, find another job, um, find out that they don't have a job. And so that psychological uh, uh, recouping mm. is going to take time for employees, never mind the fact that some people have to go back to work while their kids have to stay at home because the schools won't have opened yet. Mm. So, you know, this clash of needs is going to take a very deli- delicate navigation. And probably the strongest statistic to, to point out at this moment is just, you know, looking at some of the statistics that have come from Gallup. Uh, uh, you know, they have an international company that does a lot of work on human behavior and they do a lot of assessments. And their assessment of the South African workforce shows that, uh, you know, over the last seven years or so, um, the employee engagement rates in South Africa, which means employees that really are at work, are concentrating on their work, are able to effectively do their work and want to be at work, is only 9%. Mm. 
And I think the, the maximum that they found in the last seven years was 15%. So if, if you imagine that you've got between 9 and 15 out of every 100 people at work that are before the lockdown were able to be effective at, at work and, and be fully engaged at work, that's a major problem post-lockdown. Sorry, do carry on. No, no, go for it. Go for it. Sorry. And yeah. just, Mark, I'm just... That if that was the problem before lockdown, mm. how, much, how much worse is it going to be after? And why do you think it is so that companies have neglected or not done much when it comes to providing that social, uh, that psychosocial support uh, to employees, as the study suggests? Yeah, you know, it's not uh, that companies haven't done much. Mm. It's that I think there's a dynamic that exists, certainly in the South Africa's um, employment context, that makes it very difficult for people to actually find work where they uh, come alive. So, so we don't all get to pick and choose our career, mm-hmm. you know, uh, certainly in the South African context with the unemployment rates the way it is. You know, many people are just getting, getting the job that they can, you know. But secondly, I think there are certain cultures in organizations that are not focused on the human beings that come to work. In other words, the focus is often on making profits for shareholders, which, mm. which ultimately you know, is, is what businesses uh, are typically for. Mm. And so people and their needs and who they are as human beings often gets pushed to the wayside and becomes second, uh, the second focus compared to profits and meeting targets, etc., etc. And so what's starting to happen now uh, or what has happened is in the past is that people have typically focused on things like training and development to try and develop their people or, you know, certain face-to-face one-off interventions, you know, a culture uh, strategy or an intervention, that they'll call it organizational development, where, you know, typically they'll, they'll get organizational psychologists to try and work with people to get these psychosocial factors right. So it's not that companies haven't been trying, it's that it's very difficult to do, and oftentimes the methods that they have used in the past have been ineffective. Well, Mark, you know, we've uh, run out of time. Um, I wish we could stay on the line a little bit longer and unpack this further, but that's all we have time for today, and thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much, Olani. Lovely to be here with you. And that's Mark Baker, Chief Executive Officer of MyGrow, an online personal development platform focusing on emotional intelligence. Let's take a quick break. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zosa. Africa, Amuka na Unai. The majority of economists in an SABC News survey expect the South African Reserve Bank to cut the repo rate this week. Nine out of 11 economists surveyed expect the Reserve Bank to cut the repo rate by between 100 basis points and 25 basis points. The Reserve Bank has so far this year cut the repo rate by 225 basis points, putting money in the hands of distressed businesses and households. Most cite the knock-on grow on knock the knock on growth rather that COVID-19 will have on the economy as well as lower inflation, Tsepa Mungwai reports. Low inflation and weak growth prospects will likely lead to the Monetary Policy Committee to cut the repo rate. The Reserve Bank expects inflation to remain within the target bracket for some time to come, averaging 3.6% this year 
and increasing to 4.5% next year. The economy has taken a knock on the back of lockdown regulations put in place to cap the spread of the coronavirus. Most economists believe a cut will help stimulate the economy and boost consumer confidence. It's expected the Reserve Bank will revise downwards its economic growth forecast. Christopher Yoon is an economist with PwC. Since their last meeting, there's been positive influences on the inflation outlook. For example, local fuel prices have declined in both April and May in response to lower international oil prices. We've also seen a deterioration in the economic outlook for South Africa. This is largely linked to the relatively strict lockdown measures still in place, which is having quite a significant impact on general economic and business activity. Most economists agree the Reserve Bank would do well to lower interest rates again this week to provide a bit more stimulus to the economy and a bit more consumer confidence. RMB expects the Reserve Bank to cut the repo rate by 100 basis points. Mpomolo Piani is with RMB. Given the lagged impact that monetary policy has on growth, uh, we think that it's better for the sub to front load the cuts um, instead of delaying them. Uh, so by cutting uh, 50 basis points at the May and July meeting will uh, give the sub the benefit of assessing incoming data. Um, but given that the risks to growth are to the downside and upside risks to inflation are very minimal, uh, we already see inflation breaching the subs lower bound uh, for three consecutive quarters this year. Um, and as a result, we think that the sub has definitely more scope to lower interest rates much more aggressively. Most views shared by economists are that inflation will fall below the lower end of the Reserve Bank's target range in the coming months. This as a result of low demand conditions due to suppressing effects of the coronavirus as well as due to lower petrol price following the collapse in the international oil price. Some say the central bank is likely to cut the repo rate as it's primarily focused with providing as much support to the economy as it can given the unprecedented economic damage that the COVID-19 pandemic and the lockdown are having on the economy. Others believe that a smaller 25 basis points cut would be ideal as the Reserve Bank will likely need to preserve some room to implement further easing later in the year. Some say the earlier 255 basis points cut are yet to filter through the economy and therefore it will be premature for another rate cut before an assessment of the impact of the previous rate cut. Isaiah Mklanga is an economist with Alexander Forbes. We expect that the sub will keep interest rates unchanged at 4.25%, largely because the monetary policy decisions which they took uh, from January, March and April, which was to cut the repo rate cumulatively by 225 basis points, and also ease liquidity conditions in the banking sector by reducing the regulatory capital requirement, which is um, expected to add um, some 300 billion in liquidity within the banking sector, which they can on lend to, to, to consumers and, and companies, is not yet filtering into the economy. The Reserve Bank's Monetary Policy Committee is expected to announce its decision on Thursday. I am Tepo Mungwai in Johannesburg. And Musa is standing by for our news headlines. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African African perspective. perspective.
Good morning, I'm Anne Musan. The headlines, outgoing Lesotho Prime Minister Thomas Tabane is expected to address the nation this morning on his resignation from office. South Sudan's first Vice President Rahik Machar, his wife, the Defence Minister Angelina Tenney, as well as a number of Machar's office staff and bodyguards have tested positive with COVID-19. And US President Donald Trump says he's taking an anti-malaria drug as a preventative treatment for COVID-19. Those are the stories making headlines. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Anne. After more than a quarter of a century on the run from the law, the Rwanda's fugitive Felicien Kabuga has been arrested in France. He is accused of the crime of committing genocide and other crimes against humanity. Judicial authorities in Rwanda have noted that the arrest sends a clear message concerning other genocide suspects still in hiding around the world. Silvenus Karamera reports from Kigali. Felicia Nikabuga, one of the masterminds of the genocide against the Tutsi in 1994, has been on the run for the last 26 years. The Rwandan businessman, accused of, among others, financing the unspeakable atrocities committed during the genocide against the Tutsi in Rwanda back in 1994, has been apprehended at the age of 84, and men had thought that he would pass away before ever being brought to the justice. He was arrested on Saturday in France in what authorities termed as the results of joint partnership between Interpol and the international residual mechanisms for tribunals. This arrest has attracted different stakeholders in the fights against genocide, most of them expressing their satisfaction of finally having him before the court of law. This is Rwanda's Minister for Justice, Johnson Businje. Because Kabuga uh, was arrested in a country, in France, he has been said to have been in many other countries. He was not arrested in those other countries. Uh, I, I'm, not, I'm not accusing anybody because I'm not even sure that he was in all those countries. But uh, the, the rumor mill, the, the uh, information we kept getting over the last uh, two and a half decades was that he was in one country or another country uh, all, all the time. But he wasn't arrested there. Uh, that he has been arrested in France and uh, French institutions, uh, uh, law enforcement institutions especially, uh, uh, cooperated maximum in his arrest, that to me signifies another level of relationship, uh, a higher level of relationship, and also a commitment to justice. So in my view, uh, those other many fugitives that you are talking about that are in France, in my view, I expect that this is a new momentum. Uh, I, I think that going forward, we are going to see uh, much more work going on to bring uh, all those people to justice. And what I also think is that uh, this is a new message to the world, a new wake-up call. Those genocide suspects in every part of the world who are hiding in plain sight, who people know where they are, but uh, officially they are, they are said to be hiding. Those who are hiding are not being seen, but there is someone, some individual who is hiding them. Uh, I think this is the time. 26 years later, 
Kabuga has been found. Kabuga was the, the, the number one uh, on, uh, on uh, the notorious fugitives that we have been searching for. Uh, so those others who are in other places, uh, whoever is harboring them, uh, should, should really find this as a great momentum to deal with this matter of justice and bring these people to justice. Dr. Ajanda Masen Mizimana is the Executive Secretary of National Commission in charge of fights against genocide here in Rwanda. Kabuga Ferishan did not pick up a gun and shoot people, nor did he pick up a machete to hack a Tutsi during the genocide. But he did provide a lot of money to put in place what I can call the system of the genocide. The Inherami militia would not have been able to operate without Kabuga. He bought weapons for them, vehicles to transport them, and even gave them bonuses when they were going to kill. Please remember that on the 11th of January in 1994, General Darea, who was heading UNAMIL, the United Nations mission for Rwanda back then, got information that... Uh, at Kabuga's warehouse in Jukondo in Kigali were stockpiles of weapons that when given to the Inherahamwe would enable them to kill a thousand people every 20 minutes. That information was provided by one of the Inherahamwe's leaders. His name is Jean-Pierre Turatsinze. Second, and this is among the serious charges that have been levied against him, he was among the founders of the inflammatory media that was used. There is Radio RTLM even though you will see lists of people who gave contributions to this end. That money means nothing when you compare it to Kabogaz. His funds bought the equipment that was used. Felician Kabuga now faces the charges all related to the genocide perpetrated against the Tutsi in Rwanda, and where he is to face justice now depends on the international rescue mechanism for criminal tribunals. The president of the Genocide Survivors Umbrella Organization, Ebuka, that deals, among other things, advocates for the survivors, has welcomed the arrest. Let me start by telling you that we are very happy to have had this development. Very happy indeed. This is a strong indication as we continue to mark the 100 days of commemorating the genocide against the Tutsi. He has been arrested in France, a country that has in the past been seen to protect genocide perpetrators. This is a big step for international justice, and we thank the government of Rwanda for working with the International Residual Mechanism for criminal tribunals and the other authorities, as has been noted. The fugitive of the genocide had spent years on the run using various false identities and bribing his way from country to country on different continents. His arrest, however, is seen as a clear message to other genocide suspects still on the run and the desire for the authorities to track fugitives. More than a thousand genocide suspects around the world are being sought like Felicia and Kabuga so that they may answer for their participation in the genocide against the Tutsi in 1994 in Rwanda. Silvanus Kalemera, reporting for Channel Africa in Kigali. For your latest update on the novel coronavirus or COVID-19, for Channel Africa, I'm Arthur Skopo in Lusaka, Zambia. If you develop fever, cough, and difficulty breathing, seek medical advice promptly, as this may be due to a respiratory infection or other serious condition.
Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Culture and Joy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka. In Yawundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa. For your latest update on the novel coronavirus COVID 19, for Channel Africa in Addis Ababa in Ethiopia, I'm Coletta Wanjohi. Once contaminated, hands can transfer the virus to your eyes, nose, or mouth. From there, the virus can enter your body and make you sick. And it's 40 minutes after 7 o'clock Central African time, right here on Channel Africa. You're still tuned in to Africa Rise and Shine. Remember, you can tweet us at Channel Africa 1 or do send us a WhatsApp on plus 27-7600-3327. The Global Medical Aid Agency has partnered with local sewing shops in the Democratic Republic of Congo, the DRC, to manufacture reusable face masks in response to COVID-19. Wearing masks is one of the prevention measures to limit the spread of the disease in the context of the pandemic. The DRC now sits with over 1,500 cases of coronavirus and 61 deaths. Jane Rabotata reports. While the wearing of masks will not alone stop the transmission of COVID-19, if done in association with other measures, experts maintain that it could help reduce transmission of the virus. However, supplying masks has been a challenge for many countries and communities as the demand grows. For the past few weeks, MSF teams in the DRC have been working with around 20 small sewing shops to produce masks made from one of the validated templates and appropriate material. Carol Janssens is MSF's head of mission in the DRC. Here in Congo, uh, Doctors Without Borders was confronted with major supply issues with regards to masks uh, to protect people against uh, the COVID-19 uh, disease. And with uh, uh, the number of, of cases uh, growing, we decided here to uh, start producing uh, the, these masks locally. Um, we used a model that was validated by our uh, medical department and uh, it is made of cotton and with a uh, polyester uh, inside piece as well as a, a small metal bridge uh, for the nose. It's produced locally, so uh, we asked uh, small businesses around uh, the city here in Kinshasa to start producing this model. At the same time as uh, it uh, provided us with these uh, highly needed masks, it also provided an income for these small businesses and it spread the, the format, the template for uh, a model of masks that protects uh, its, its user. 
According to Janssen's, more than 60,000 masks have been produced locally for MSF so far. And we are handing them out to our colleagues, as well as to patients in the waiting areas of the hospitals and the health structures that uh, Doctors Without Borders supports. We've done a big donation to one of the prisons here in Kinshasa. Now, it is important to, to keep in mind that these masks do not replace the, the specific medical masks that are used in health structures. These are masks that are produced locally and that are used outside of the medical uh, setting and that protect people by avoiding that when they cough the, and they are infected, that they do spread uh, COVID-19. He explains that information around the correct use of masks is important. When we do distribute these masks, we uh, also make sure that we explain to the users how to use them, how to put them off, on, how to take them off. And we also make sure that people get instructions on how to reuse them because these uh, masks are uh, washable. So uh, with uh, a bit of boiling water and soap, uh, they can be reused uh, several times. It avoids as well the waste from uh, the non-reusable non masks that are also so uh, sold at uh, very high prices here. So yeah, I think uh, a great initiative that for us uh, overcame the, the problem of uh, having major supply issues and that at the same time gives a, an opportunity for local businesses as well as it spreads the format of a mask that has been validated by a medical team uh, in a community that needs a lot of uh, these kind of masks. That's Carol Janssens, Head of Mission for Doctors Without Borders in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Jane Rabutada in Johannesburg. Some civil society organizations in South Africa say they are keenly awaiting clarity from the Minister of Basic Education and Jimotseha on how schools will be prepared to open amid the COVID-19 pandemic. Schools have been closed for nearly six weeks as government battles to contain the virus. To get schools ready to operate during the lockdown, precautions must be implemented. Civil society organizations like Equal Education and Section 24 say they want specific issues to be clarified. Motseha is scheduled to address the public on these matters later today, Zeline Merrington reports. As the country still battles to flatten the curve, the academic year seems to be in peril. All eyes are on Basic Education Minister Angie Mochecha to provide some direction on the reopening of schools. Civil Society Organization Section 27 spokesperson Moteo Brody says there are a lot of blanks to be filled. We're hoping the minister provides clarity on what will happen to the National Schools Nutrition Program, which ordinarily benefits over 9 million learners, and how the reopening of schools will work for learners with disabilities. We also want to know more about the provision of personal protective gear for learners and education staff, and vitally, the rollout of sanitation infrastructure to the close to 4,000 schools which only have pit toilets and lack running water. We also need to know more about how social distancing will work at schools and how the plan takes into account the need for scholar transport. Equal Education Secretary General Notedu Madubedube echoes these sentiments. There are a couple of things that we're looking forward to hearing um, as the minister addresses the nation. 
The first is around the school nutrition program. We're concerned that as the country faces a humanitarian crisis around food shortages, that learners in poor and working class communities become even further marginalized in, in terms of food security. So we think it's imperative for the program to open regardless of who's back at school or not. We want to plan around how we're going to track and ensure that learners that are still locked down during the phased in approach of reopening schools will have access to learning materials, whether it's enrichment or curricula. Some political parties say minimum requirements must be adhered to for schools to reopen. COPE spokesperson Dennis Bloom and Freedom Front Plus MP Voter Bosov explain. We fully support and agree with the teachers' unions that all minimum requirements must first be met, like proper infrastructure, toilets, sanitizers, masks, soap and water must be there. Social distancing, we must be sure that there will be social distancing. That is the only way that we can support the opening of schools again. There are many ways to present education. The normal school isn't the only, and uh, that is actually not new news, but it seems to me that the Department of Education is only learning it now. The department uh, used to be quite uh, skeptical about homeschooling, uh, placing stringent uh, regulations uh, to homeschooling, while they are now mu much more accommodating. The DA's MP Mbulelo Bara says they support the reopening of schools with conditions. Uh, however, there are issues that need to be addressed, namely the issue of water and sanitation in many schools remains a challenge. Two, social distancing. How is it going to be addressed, especially where they, they are a lot of learners in one class. Thirdly, there were schools that were bent down or vandalized during the lockdown period. What is going to happen in trying to assist learners in those specific areas? Fourthly, the provision of masks and all PPE equipment for, for teachers um, at schools must be addressed. ACDP MP Mari Sukur says it could still be possible to save the academic year. We also want to hear from the minister about the curriculum adjustments for the rest of the year and how we ensure that the year is not completely lost. It is not too late for children to return. It is um, a good time for children to return now, but we, the safety of our children is um, most important. Committee Chairperson Bongiwe Mbingo Gigaba was unavailable for comment. Zeline Merrington, Parliament. And it's now time for our economics news with Tabi Solihoko. Good morning. The airport's operator, Airports Company South Africa, has sought financial support from Treasury. AXA has asked Treasury to finance up to 594 million US dollars of new debt 
by 2025. Since late March, when South Africa declared a state of disaster to contain the new coronavirus, major domestic airports have closed, knocking AXA revenue. The International Air Transport Association says airlines could lose up to $6 billion in passenger revenue this year due to the coronavirus pandemic. As the South African economy slowly reopens, some shopping mall owners have been battling to collect rent from retail stores amid COVID-19 pandemic. However, some say they understand that some stores couldn't trade due to the lockdown restrictions. Lynette Noring is the centre manager at Tamboti Mall in the west of Johannesburg. Most of the shops in Tamboti Mall didn't open, uh, only opened 1st of May again. So only three shops that was open was Checkers, Woolwich's and Diskem. Um, so it's a struggle to get in rental. The tenants, we understand where they're coming from because they didn't trade for April. So, but it's an upwards battle. Um, luckily for us, the tenants did pay for the um, municipal accounts. So we at least could have paid municipal bills before they cut off our power and stuff but it's an onwards battle we're trying to survive and it's not it's not easy times workers at the village main reefs kopanong operations near Tlaxdorp in south africa's northwest province have vowed to intensify their strike action if mine management continues to remain mum about uh, their concerns. The mine was temporarily closed for care and maintenance when the lockdown was first announced by the president in March. But now workers say they're concerned about delays in the 50% recall, issues around unpaid unemployment insurance fund for foreign workers and the lack of communication between them and mine management. Mandi Samatikani is a worker at the Kopanong operations. We are standing on the 50% recall, which is, we don't know what's happening. No one is telling us or reporting to us as to why we're not being recalled on the 50% issue. And there are people who are occupying the hostel. They only eat twice a day. It's at 8 o'clock and at 12 o'clock. And there are those that uh, have uh, issues of sugar diabetics. The other thing is our representatives that are supposed to represent us in making sure that the 50% recall has been done. We hear rumors that they are not... Uh, basically attending to that. The other... The International Monetary Fund has called for transparency in the spending of COVID-19 responder funds in Kenya. The IMF is of the view that Nairobi must enhance transparency in the utilization of these funds to ensure they are being spent on combating the virus that has so far infected 781 Kenyans and caused 45 deaths. The Bretton Woods Institute says corruption, misuse of lack of transparency in the spending of COVID-19 funds risks compromising Kenya's efforts to tackle the pandemic. Somalia has officially opened the first round of bidding for oil exploration even as the critics charged there was insufficient law to manage the program. The country's Ministry of Petroleum and Mineral Resources said the program, known as the Licensing Round of Pre-Announcement Offshore, will target seven blocks with the most potential for hydrocarbons. The blocks are scattered in Galmaduk State, Hishabele Southwest and Jubaland, 
Officials argued the bidding will be run under the Somali Petroleum Law as well as petroleum sharing agreements. The US dollar is trading at 387.37, Nigerian Nara 12 for 3, Botswana Pula 105.85, Kenyan Shilling and 18.44, Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, we start in Brazil, where one US dollar will cost you 5.76 real. In Russia, 72.94 ruble. In India, 75 rupees of 15. China, it's changing hands at 7 yuan 10. And in South Africa, it's at 18 rands 42. The US dollar is trading at 82 pence to the British pound and at 92 cents to the euro. Let's look at commodities markets now. Gold $1,741, platinum $820 pounds. The price of Brent crude oil is a $34.97 a barrel. It's Channel Africa. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorna. Africa, Amuka na Unai. And that brings us to the end of Africa Rise and Shine for today. From myself, Jolani Tulo, producer, Luanda Maume, technical producer, Sfiso Mashiro, thank you for listening. For comments on the show, do send us an email at, do send us an email to info at channelafrica.co.za or WhatsApp to plus two seven seven six three hundred double three two seven. Tweet us at Channel Africa One. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news um, is... Uh, Uyandi Tanda by Zonke Digana. Do enjoy and keep safe.